0: God's image and in the incarnation God was made in man's image and there's so many aspects to this great theme of Jesus as King uh, one of our great when I say our this country one of our great Bible scholars and teachers Alec Mottier who died th- I thought it was a couple of years ago in fact it was seven years ago he uh, he's written a number of books and one of his books he says that virtually the whole Old Testament is a cry for a king. If you go through the kings of Israel, Judah had 20, Israel, the northern kingdom had 19. Judah's kings, out of the 24 of them were good. Out of the 19 of Israel, none of them were good. And so there is a cry for the king. Now, I've got a very strange objective this morning, and that is that I want you to come into church and then go out of church this morning, having learned that you know very little. Now, you'll see what I mean by that as we go along. Uh, Sometimes it is good for us freely to acknowledge there are so many things we just do not know. Now, the theme of the kingship of Jesus is enormous. Last week you were thinking about Jesus as prophet, uh, and that emphasizes the word of God. The kingship of Jesus emphasizes his rule, his authority, his command of all things. And what I want to do, I want to take three kind of triads or triplets that we find in the New Testament, focusing on the middle one with with a significant bit at the beginning and the end. And you'll see as we go along what I mean. Uh, I think in many ways, we, regarding sort of standing up to atheism, we've become quite good, I think, because I think some of the answers to the atheist questions and, and position has been well answered in our day. And we, it's what we might call fighting talk. We come out fighting, we can talk about that. But sadly, we sometimes seem to suffer from an anemic theism, uh, and what I mean by that is that our grasp of God is weak, and our response to God sometimes is is a bit feeble, inadequate. I don't mean all the time, and I 'm making a general statement. I, I know there's many exemption, uh, exceptions to that, but we need to recover and to keep our view of God. And when we come to Jesus as king, we actually need to rethink kingship altogether. So, for example, with regard to Jesus, he's an expected, yet an unexpected king. He's a wanted king, but he's an unwanted king. He's dying as a king and yet living as a king. He was born a king, and yet he was always a king. He was a different king because he washed feet. He was an enduring king. Our queen reigned for 70 years. Jesus has an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting kingship. An absolute king, not a constitutional monarch like our sovereign, where the rule is of parliament and there's a, there's a guide and a control. No, Jesus is an absolute king, yet not an absolute tyrant. He's a king with no limitations, no set duration, no exemptions, no exclusions, no exceptions. That's the kind of king he is. And I want to show you three remarkable little triads here. And it illustrates the great consistency and cohesion of the Bible. The way it all fits together. They're not simply beautiful statements, but they're powerful propositions about God and king. So the first one is Acts chapter 17. We haven't read the, we've read the main passage, which is Revelation, we'll come to that. But in Acts 17, you may recall, if you know your Bible, if you don't, it's worth looking it up and reading it. In Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens. Now, at that time, Athens wasn't the great glorious city that it used to be. It still had a great reputation. It was still the place of philosophical talk and getting together and exploring ideas. And the Athenians loved that. And of course, Paul goes there and he preaches and he talks about the gospel. And in that, um, he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, he, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he says this For in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. Already you begin to think, well, I, I can't really comprehend that. Now, here's a, a quotation from an author who commented on that. And it's a very interesting thing. Now, what I'm, I'm going to mention this first triad, which we've just done. In him we live and move and have our being. And we come to one at the end, but the middle one we're going to focus on. But let me say, quote this regarding this statement. This quote is not simply the insight of a Jew favoured with God's special revelation of himself to Israel, which was the position of the Jew. The quote comes from an ancient Greek poet. He was not referring to the true God, as Christians know him, but to the supreme God, Whoever he was. So that's when we read that. In him we live and move and have our being. It's a Greek poet. There's a little bit of dispute as to exactly which Greek poet. But then he says, but he saw clearly enough that what must be evident to all who cared to open their eyes, we did not make ourselves. We do not maintain the world we live in, nor the sun that is indispensable for our life and survival. We are utterly and constantly dependent on the one who gave us life to maintain us in life. The very air we breathe is supplied by him and placed all around us and within us. So when we talk about God as king, Jesus as king, that's the kind of king he is. In him we live and move and have our being. All is his kingdom. But then let's move now to the central thing, and that is found in Revelation chapter 1. It, it, is, it is mentioned in verse 4, but then picked up again in verse 8. And so I'll read verse 8. Revelation 1, which is this glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is a spectacular audiovisual of great gospel truths. And let me just say before I read the verse, and I'll, you know, sometimes there's an offensiveness in the world about the fact that Jesus was crucified and that his blood was shed and that through that we are saved. I mean, that's the gospel message. But, and sometimes that's kind of ridiculed or, or frowned upon or even spoken against. It's, it's nothing new. It's happened for years But it's always of great interest to me that if you go to heaven itself, the holiest and the happiest of places, this is what we hear in this same chapter. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion. That's what kings have, is dominion forever and ever. Amen. So heaven resonates with the truth and the proclamation of the truth and the exclamation of the truth that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in the happiest and holiest of places. Wonderful. Well, verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What a statement. There's your second triad or triplet, who is and who was and who is to come. Now this book, Revelation, was penned at a time of persecution and trial for the church, Indeed, John himself writes as an exile from the church or churches he loved. And how often in Scripture, when the clouds are dark and daunting, the Lord announces great truths and reveals great things about himself. And so it is here. And that's true in life generally. And you will find that sometimes as you go through dark times and difficult times, that perhaps somewhere along that journey, the Lord will show you new, fresh things about himself that you hadn't appreciated before. It's an encouraging reality. And the vision of the Lord Jesus granted to John here is enough to almost cause him to literally drop dead. Because he says, I felt that his feet is dead. Great crises cause us to look up to our great God. And we need, always need a fresh vision of our God as he is. And what does this great verse in this great chapter, in this great book tell us? What does it tell us? Well, we'll focus just on this. The Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. Let's just try and reflect on that. He is the God who is. The God who is. Perhaps it literally means in the Greek language, the being one. He is being. He is being. How great a being, Lord, is thine, which doth all beings keep, wrote the hymn writer. And he is, that is to say, he presides over his creation and no events or no occurrences diminish his presence and power in and over creation. Nothing in all creation, whether the natural world or the world of mankind, can change the fact that he is. Herod couldn't do that when he tried to kill the king at Bethlehem. He is the presider over history and providence. He is the eternal, unchangeable presence in the world with all its turbulence, all its tragedy, all its tears and trials. He is, and he is there to be called upon and to be relied upon and to be trusted and to be leaned upon in difficulty, which was the situation in Revelation. John himself is exiled. And that's why we are here. That's why we gather, because we worship God and we want to serve God. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been brought to God. And God does not run away, He is the God who is forever there. He is. He is. But the text also says he was. He not only presides over creation, he precedes creation. And creation proceeds from him. His eternality, his being, he was there when there was nothing. I told you you wouldn't be able to get your head around it. He was there when there was nothing. In terms of creation. And as we survey all of history from creation right up to now, he was there. What does he not know? What has he not seen? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's what John wrote in his gospel. And the Lord God questions Job as he emerges from all his sorrows and the Lord puts to him, I know, a whole series of questions. One of them is this. Where were you when I led the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Where were you when I led the earth's foundation? Worth asking yourself that. Where was I when God led the foundation of the earth? Where were you? Where were we? And because our God is truly omnipotent, the Almighty, we can be truly confident. Omnipotence for Him means confidence for us. He was. He was. And He is. And then the text carries on He is to come. So the fact that he is means he presides over creation and history. The fact that he was means that, that he um, rules over all these things, but he is to come. And again, this is hard to comprehend. Well, it's, at one level, it's impossible to comprehend. He preordains all things. And in his coming is the consummation of all things. We utterly reject the idea that the world is just, and history is just one endless cycle. This is not so. This is not the truth. The truth is it is linear and it has a beginning and it will have an end and a consummation as far as time and history is concerned. He is to come. And this idea is already in the, in, the, in the expression, I am the alpha and the omega, the first letter and the last letter of the, the Greek alphabet. And you know as well as I do, if you buy a book on, uh, what shall we say, the A to Z of Leeds United, all right? What that means is, or whatever it might be, whatever the book might be, the A to Z of how to play the guitar. You know what it means. It means everything in between. I bought myself an A to Z of Leeds so I can walk around every street in Leeds. And that's what, what this, so what God is saying is from the beginning to the end and everything in between, I am the Almighty. If the sea is calm, it's because he commands it. If the sea is tempestuous and turbulent, he still commands it and it awaits his Peace be still. And the devil deceives and divides and destroys and disrupts in this world with all its turmoil, but he is to come. He is to come. And that's particularly powerful, isn't it, when we think of all the prophecies leading up to the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem. Don't ever forget that. These things were written centuries before and, and and beautifully unfolded, even though some of it was quite unexpected. And every word and every promise was fulfilled. He is to come. He came, but he is to come. Now, this is a remarkable thing. And in the book of Revelation, the beasts which symbolize the nations. The beasts rise and devour, but he is to come. That's the way the book flows. Now, perhaps the ultimate example of this God preordaining all things, which does not exclude human accountability and responsibility. This is why we can't get our head around this totally, but God is the absolute ruler of all things. He is and was and is to come. The greatest tragedy of our sinful world was in the hands of the Alpha and the Omega. What do I mean? Acts 2. Whenever Peter's speaking about the death and uh, trial of Jesus and all the things that happened to him, he says this. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge... And you, with the help of wicked men, have put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And the children of faith realize that this cannot be fathomed. But we rest in God. We rest in God And so there's the second triad Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a wonderful statement? So in him we live and move and have our being Said the Greek poet Without even really understanding it He'd got hold of something But then the Lord God himself announces That he is the Alpha and the Omega And the one who is and who was And who is to come How do you respond to that? Well you come to the third triad And in the book of uh, Romans and chapter 11, because in in chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul reviews the history of the world, particularly with regard to the promises made to Israel and the apparent failure of God's promises. And he explains that God's word has not failed. It's a complex chapter. When he gets to the end, he says this, Oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. And then here's our third triplet. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's how you respond. And then he says to him, be glory forever. Now, the people of this world look maybe at this gathering and particularly praying when you think about it, it's often picked up on what is the point of praying? Well, that then becomes a rather silly statement. In the light of the one who is and who was and who is to come. In the light of the one in whom we live and move and have our being. In the light of the one who from him and through him and to him are all things. Prayer is the most natural thing in the world. In that pure sense. Men and women of faith see the greatness of God and they hear the call of God and they follow it. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Thank offerings to God, Psalm 50. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. So I say this, let's call with confidence on him who is the Almighty and the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. I'm sure some of you, most of you probably remember at the time of our present king, becoming king, there were those who protested with their their little banners, not my king, uh, with respect to any Republicans who may be here this morning. But that's that's what people said. And the world still says, with those of old, regarding Jesus, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's what they said. And that's what so many still say. But those who trust and believe and follow and have known his grace in his hand, we say this, he is my king. And no one else but him is my king. He's the one that calmed the sea. And so often in the book of Revelation and in the Bible in general, the sea is a picture of a troubled, turbulent, tempestuous world. And that's the world we live in this morning. And it's true, isn't it? And we just turn on the TV or pick up a newspaper and it's there in front of you. The world is in turmoil. And it's always in turmoil. As long as I can remember... There's been turmoil and trouble. And perhaps there are some of you here that know more about that, that than some of us. He is the one who calms the sea. And obviously there is comfort and help here for us. And, and there's every reason and encouragement to be people who pray. But also, there's multiple implications of all of this. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to sketch out some things. Worship. In approaching God myself, yourself, or especially like this with other believers, when we worship a God, is it not fitting for reverence and respect and, 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 and humility mixed with joy and solemnity? You see how it do He's the God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What about coming to your Bible? Particularly, I'm thinking of when you read the Bible in your home on your own as you pick it up each day or endeavor to pick it up each day. You read the Bible. This is the word of Him who is and who was and who is to come. It's a unique and special revelation from Him, from His throne. It's the word of the King. What about our view of the world? How do we see the world? How do we see the history of the world? How do we see the state of the world? this world in turmoil we see it through the eyes of him who is and who was and who is to come it 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 affects the way you see the world and you young people you're growing up where you're being fed all kinds of things don't ignore this as you try and shape and form the way you will see the world that you're growing up in it's a corrective when my spiritual vision gets blurred for whatever reason. I have to confess, I'm well overdue to go to the opticians. And the phrase, it should have gone to Specsavers really applies to me, I'll tell you. I can't see so well, and when I'm driving at night, it's terrible. I must hasten to the opticians as quick as possible. But what about when your spiritual vision gets blurred for whatever reason? What about that? This... And sharpen your vision again. You know that lovely feeling when you go to the opticians and they're dropping in the little lenses? How's that? Is that better? Is that worse? And the image becomes crystal clear. And then you walk out of the shop and you think, oh, that's what the street looks like. And we need, we need a sense of that, you know, in, in, in the things of God. This is the God that we worship, this is the gospel that we preach. And I want, you to have, I want you to have a view of God that almost causes you to drop dead. I want you to have a view of God where you, you say to yourself, I cannot comprehend that. And yet he loves me and he's died for me. What about a life of service? We serve humbly, yet with confidence, whether it's ministry or evangelism or giving. And to serve him is truly a reflex. Let this be a church where everybody serves, not just the few. It's such a common thing. This is the God we serve. What about the pursuit of godliness? If you're anything like me, you know that your own sin dogs your footsteps. Gotta go to Romans 7 to read about that. But we prayed, didn't we? To our king, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. The pursuit of godliness in the light of this. So the past is mixed with good and bad in our own lives, in the history of the world, but he was there. The future need not fill us with fear, rather hope and expectations, for he will come and he will be there. The present is filled with many things, good and bad, but he is here, an ever present help in trouble. Well, as Pilate said somewhat sarcastically, but we can say with absolute certainty, Luke, here is your king. Luke, here is your king, in here. Let me finish by just quoting you something from the, I don't know, unmatchable um, sermon. I don't know if you've ever heard the sermon. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, don't worry. By Shadrach Meshach Lockridge about God as king. At one point, he, he has a little run just on the kingship of Jesus, and we'll finish with that. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. Dear friends, let us join John at his feet. Amen. We're going to sing, sorry, we're going to sing before communion. Um, One of, uh, really, it's a lovely, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, oh, praise him. This, thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam. It's a beautiful little hymn, sort of bringing praise to God, our King. So let's sing this, and then we'll be coming around the Lord's table and Tony will lead us.